0: Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. We will be looking today at verse 16 through verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we will have it featured on the screen. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we have some blue paperback Bibles in the pews around you. You can feel free to pick one of those up uh, and take that with you home uh, as our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 17 starting in verse 16. If you would, church family, if you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 17, 16 through 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Children, you are dismissed. Let's pray as we begin this time. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we have reason after reason to give you our thanks, to give you our praise. Lord, namely for this time now, we come to your word, the very word of God we have opened up before us here now. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take this time for granted, that we wouldn't lose sight of the significance of what, of what it means to hear from the most holy, most righteous God of the universe. Well, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to this task of learning, of learning from your word, of being instructed, of being enlightened, of having our eyes opened and our ears opened and our hearts opened to what you would have to say to us and to teach us today from your word. I pray, Lord, that as we come, we would come empowered by the Holy Spirit. For indeed, Lord, we know that unless the Holy Spirit moves acts in order to Help us, Lord, we are indeed helpless. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and would be here in this place today, Lord, as we study your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We uh, come now to a passage of Scripture that to a certain degree kind of forces my hand to discuss certain things that I'm not uh, overly... Necessarily, always enthused about talking about. I have had, as some of you in the room know, um, those of you who don't, you're going to learn. I have pretty long-standing, uh, somewhat negative opinions about philosophy. <laughs> um, I'm not much of a philosopher. I've never cared much for philosophy as a as a discipline, as a as an art form, as a subject to study in school, especially. That's where most of my uh, uh, knowledge about it has come from. It's frankly always been my opinion with regards to philosophers and philosophy that the, the goal is often just to um, make your brain hurt uh, by confusing you uh, with, with various tough questions and, and difficult things. Uh, and if they can confuse themselves, great, but if they can confuse you, even better, seems to have... Uh, be the consensus to me when I talk to people who are into philosophy, uh, it seems to be their joy to sort of make my brain hurt as well as theirs therefore i 've never been a huge fan of philosophy and been somewhat vocal about that. However, in recent days, uh, actually uh, in, in a recent conversation that uh, we had at our church history class a few weeks ago, I was sort of challenged in my views on philosophy, my negative uh, understandings of philosophy, and, uh, and I think rightly so, because I think my, my understandings were r- largely rooted in bad experiences and misunderstandings. Now, I'm not a philosopher by any means. Even after all of that, uh, I still come to much of, uh, of the discipline of philosophy with uh, a lot of confusion, certainly as a difficulty for me, but nevertheless, I find myself now here in Acts chapter 17. Uh, where I see the Apostle Paul coming into contact and uh, not just coming into contact with, but engaging with the philosophers and the philosophies of his day. We see Paul here engaging with uh, various philosophers of the culture here in Athens, and he's doing so on their terms. Paul doesn't come to these philosophers and, and proclaim that philosophy is doo-doo, as might have been my strategy, If I were Paul, he doesn't come and he he doesn't condemn their pursuit of wisdom, their desire for truth, but rather, Paul approaches them as a Christian philosopher, and Paul puts forward the solution to their questions and the solution to their searching, and rather than condemning their desire for truth, their, their pursuit of wisdom and knowledge Rather than condemn that, what he does instead is he gives them proper source material. Because really, when it comes down to it, I think the problem I've, I've typically had with philosophy as a discipline, as a subject, is not so much the problem with the discipline, but the problem with what mostly is, is understood as modern philosophy or uh, what I'm going to call secular philosophy, as in where it's rooted. What is its source material? For, for the term philosophy means uh, the study of truth, the pursuit of wisdom, right? Is what philosophy is. And that's a good pursuit. It's a good study. It's a good science, a good discipline. But oftentimes, what we see from secular philosophy and secular philosophers, and indeed the philosophers in our story, in our context here today, is that their source material is bad. They're searching for truth. They desire wisdom, they desire understanding but they're searching for it, their source material, the places they're looking for it, is all wrong. For what secular philosophers use to to search for truth and to understand and, and, and seek wisdom, their source material is often nature, or even man himself, looking inwardly for sources of truth and understanding. And as we know of both of those things, nature and man, One thing that's true of both of those things is that because of the fall, they are corrupt. Those pieces of source material are corrupt and can never come to an ultimate understanding, an ultimate uh, uh, truth, wisdom, knowledge that God would have us to come to. And so it is not the, the discipline of philosophy that's bad. But rather, as is the case with the philosophers in Paul's day, It's their source material. Paul actually engages in philosophical discussion and philosophical debate. He does not shy away from it. In fact, he meets them where they're at. But he meets them with proper source material. So as we come now to to this story where the Apostle Paul finds himself in Athens, brought even to the Areopagus as we will see today and even look at more next week, I want us to look here in just this short passage, these few verses, and see these, these key players here in our story. And I'm saying there's, there's three key players in this text. These will be our three main points for today. The three players in this text are Athens, the city of Athens, the Apostle Paul, and the Gospel. If I can be so bold as to sort of personify all three of these, including Athens and the Gospel. That these are the three players in our text today. Athens, Paul, and the Gospel. And we're going to look at these one by one, starting with the city of Athens, point number one: Athens is a city known as we see in our text for idols and philosophers. The first thing we see in, in verse sixteen is that idolatry was rampant in Athens. We see in verse sixteen Paul, while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, he had called for them if you, if, for them, if you recall from last week, he had gone ahead of them in order to escape the the potential persecution that they were facing. And he now was called for Silas and Timothy. But one thing we know to be true of Paul, he's not the kind to sit on his hands and to just wait. Paul looked around. He he looked at Athens. He surveyed the situation. And he saw that Athens was a city filled with idols. Verse 16 says, His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. As Paul was walking around, as he was surveying the city of Athens, he saw the idolatry. But now it's not the case that Paul was, was walking around and seeing a bunch of, of little, uh, little statues, little totems labeled idol. This is this idol, this is this idol, this is that idol. He wasn't walking around seeing a bunch of little things clearly labeled as idols sitting all over the place. What Paul was doing is that he was surveying the culture. He was looking at what he saw around him, at the artwork, at the architecture, at the festivities, at the the things that made up this culture, and he was identifying what's going on behind these things. What's happening behind the artwork here and what's represented in it? What's happening behind these behaviors, these festivities, and what is represented in it? And what Paul found as he did that is he not just looked for things called idols, but as he looked into the culture of the city of Athens, is that he looked through the surface to see what was going on behind, what was driving the culture, and he saw everywhere he looked, everywhere he turned it, in the artwork, in the festivities, in the makeup of the city, what was driving it was left and right, idolatry. Worshiping those things which God has commanded not to worship, substituting created things for the Creator and worshiping those things instead. This gives us a little bit of insight into the nature of, of Athenian philosophy as well. As, as philosophy is largely what what Paul's going to be uh, the philosophers or who he's going to be talking to largely here, but we see some insights into their philosophy that, uh, that theirs is one that readily embraced even was rooted in pagan idolatry. Their philosophical systems were not such that they rejected spirituality, that they they rejected uh, gods, but rather they happily embraced them. Their philosophies were such that they would happily take in uh, various gods, various means of worship, whatever it is that they saw as a means to their end via philosophy, they would happily accept. And so you see in Athens, this mixture of both idolatry, paganism, as well as philosophy. In the same way, modern atheists, philosophers, which is not a terribly uncommon breed, a modern atheist philosopher today might claim uh, to have remedied the issues of, of these pagan philosophers by rejecting the idea of God altogether. The atheists would say, no, ours is not one that is rooted in or, or, or idolatrous because we have rejected worship of any God. There is no such thing as God. We rejected it. Therefore, ours is not like the pagan philosophies of old. And yet, what we know to be true is that in actuality, these atheist philosophers, their philosophy is still one that's rooted in idol worship. But the problem is that the idol that's being worshipped, is man himself. It's it's humanism at its core. The worship of man rather than God or other things. It's still idolatry, just of a slightly different flavor. Even today we see. If you want to know what's going on with the culture that you find yourself in, then much like Paul, it's the task of the believer to to look past what's going on in the culture, to look at what the root of what's happening is. And this is true even for us. When we look at the the artwork, when we look at what characterizes our culture, it's a good practice for us to see what is it that's driving these things? What is it that my culture worships? When we were in Rome, one of the things that that Leonardo, one of the pastors there in, in Rome, uh, sort of uh, the the digital tour that he gave us was was called the Idols of Rome tour, which is where he, along with the other pastors that were there, had had gone through Rome and identified the various idols there in Rome. And now these idols that they identified weren't various totems, weren't various places where there were there was a shrine built and a and, and a statue that people were bowing down to, although sometimes that was the case. What they were identifying is what is it that this culture. Worships, values, is consumed by. Because that's where the heart is, and that's what needs to be addressed. And this is a good practice for us as well. That we ought to seek to understand what are the idols in our culture? Because indeed, our culture has idols, don't we? When you think about what it is, even even think about Evansville. And, and I'm gonna hit home a little bit here, and I'm sorry. But think about what kind of festivals Evansville has. If you were to think about, say, the biggest street festival in Evansville, and you were forced to sort of pin down, okay, what is it that this, value cult- this culture values? What is it that this festival is about? Fried foods. Right? I think it would be safe to say and I don't think it would be unfair, and I think it's even worthwhile to say that, that food isn't definitely a potential idol for, for us in this area, for Westerners in general, just to be fair. You think about this practice of looking at other things. That's an, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, right? Pointing to the fall festival and saying, oh, look, food is an idol here. It absolutely is. But you can look at the culture around you and see that there are various things that the culture values that drives it, that consumes it, and those are the things that the culture worships. But it's not just true in cultures and in cities, but this is, this is even a practice that we ought to do on ourselves because we are prone, as Augustine says, to be idol factories, to constantly come up with things that vie for our worship, that detract us from worshiping God and call us to worship and prioritize these things instead of God. Left and right, this happens. I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a, a woman that I used to work with at the hospital, a woman that I loved dearly and that loved the Lord, and she was amazing. But I, have, I was having a conversation with her, and she said, you know, I, I look forward to heaven. I look forward to what it's going to be like to, to be with Christ. But she said, man, I just, I love what I have going on here so much with my family. I've got such good kids and grandkids and I love my time with them I I almost just think I'm just not ready yet Lord like I love my family so much I don't I'd rather stay with them and and I say that not to to condemn my co-worker but to say if we think long and hard about it we all can see that we're prone to these same ways of thinking huh of thinking of things in our lives, even sometimes good things. This woman was talking about her family. God gives us family for a reason. It's a gift from God, and it is to be enjoyed to his glory. And yet we know full well that our families can very easily become an idol for us, can very easily consume our thoughts, consume our emotions, capture our hearts in a way that is not only unhealthy, but in a way that is ungodly. There are many things that can seek to capture our heart, capture our affections, and we need to be regularly identifying those things and addressing them, both in our lives but even in the culture at large. While Paul is is preaching in the synagogue and in the marketplace, he meets these philosophers that we uh, are addressing in our, our text here today. These guys, known as the Epicureans and the Stoics, I'm going to just uh, not get into too much detail, but sort of answer the question: Who are these people? Who are the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, well, these were really the two main philosophies of that day, a- and they they have a lot of sort of differences among them. The Epicureans were were a group that were largely motivated by a sort of a sort of hedonistic idea of pleasure. That is, what is what is the, the pathway to joy, to satisfaction, to truth is found in material things, in pleasure. It, it, it was very much has hedonistic roots, saying that the ultimate end for men is to enjoy things as best they can here on earth. The pleasures of life, whether it be food, whether it be relationships, whether it be food, uh, wine, whatever the case might be, luxuries. Whatever can bring you the most amount of pleasure, that is where to find your identity, though the differing slightly from sort of the the original uh, base level hedonism which said if something feels good, do it to the nth degree, to the point that maybe you even make yourself sick on it, hurt yourself on it the uh, The Epicureans were uh, I would say more of a sophisticated kind of hedonism that said, well, you can do too much, you know we want to want to be moderate about it, but the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate end for man is still found in physical, material pleasures, just in the right measure. And then you had the Stoics, which uh, while the Epicureans were focused on enjoying pleasure as much as possible, the Stoics, on the other hand, were a little bit different. The Stoics were those uh, that were, their philosophy was rooted in a sort of uh, fatalistic determinism. That what happens to you is completely outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. They had a very limited view of human uh, freedom. And therefore, their philosophy was to be most satisfied, to get the most out of life, is to simply accept what's gonna happen to you and not let it affect you. When good things happen to you, don't get too affected by those good things. When bad things happen to you, don't let those bad things get you down. This is why whenever you you maybe have heard someone describe this, that person's very stoic or that they look very stoic in that picture. The idea behind that is that they look very emotionless, that they don't uh, maybe get too excited or or too sad. or just kind of like uh, almost a a flat line of emotion is sometimes what we think of when we think of someone who is stoic. That's rooted in this idea of stoicism that, look, what's going to happen to you is going to happen to you. You're going to live your life here on earth There's nothing you can do about it, and then one day you're going to die. The best thing that you can do, what's best for you and for your flourishing is just to not let it affect you one bit, but just to press on. Both of these two philosophies, which were the dominant philosophies of the day, they had largely uh, taken over this area uh, of the world at the time. While they're, they're different in many ways, they do share some things in common. First of all, Both of them are focused on the here and the now. The Epicureans say, you need to seek as much pleasure as possible right now, or at least the right amount of pleasure. Find the right amount of pleasure here and now, whether it be from this, that, or the other here on earth. That's where your joy, your satisfaction is going to be. It's going to be found here. It's going to be found now. The, The Stoics, while it wasn't so much having to do with pleasure, but having to do with your approach to life, said, it all depends on how you handle what comes at you here in this life here and now. That's where both of these philosophies are rooted. And therefore, both of these philosophies provide zero hope, zero satisfaction to their followers. They can do nothing for you other than maybe temporary pleasure or temporary melancholy. I don't know. But they can do very little for you. And both of them considered the message that Paul preached to be unreasonable to a reasonable person. What did they call him? A babbler. What does this babbler wish to say? In fact, the only reason that they really cared to hear him out was because some of them said, well, I think he's preaching foreign divinities. In other words, (laughs) sounds like something new, something exciting. This is what drove them in the text. They wanted to hear the new thing that he had to say. Hey, if he's got a new God to add to our list of gods and things that we worship why not i might make my life more pleasurable he might have some some insight that can help me stay uh, uh less emotional as life comes my way i'll hear him out i'm all about new stuff but by and large they thought his message was one that was foolish why well paul tells us in first corinthians 1 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing It's no surprise to us that these secular, these worldly philosophers would find the the message that Paul had, the message of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, to be silly. Because it was a message that while it had effects, that while it had ramifications for the here and now, was ultimately rooted in, and the hope and the, the end of it was ultimately rooted in something beyond this life. Something even beyond the grave. As he preached not just Christ but Christ and the resurrection. This is the context in which Paul finds himself here in Athens. And even though his friends were not yet there, he was in it. He was about it. He was getting it done. He went ahead with the work. And so we see the second player in our story here today, Paul, a man ruled by God. As he steps into this situation, as he surveys the city of Athens and he sees all of the idolatry, that the city was full of idols, we begin to see and understand Paul's motivation for why he began to proclaim the gospel to these people. When Paul saw the idolatry in Athens, he was distressed to his core. We read in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. It's not just that that Paul became indignant. It's not just that Paul was annoyed. It's that Paul was moved, that he was grieved by what he saw. He was grieved, not just because the one true God was being neglected, certainly that was a part of it, but because all of these people were being deceived. All of these people who were so convinced of their philosophy, who were so convinced of their way of life, who were so convinced of their idols and their worship, were on a direct path to destruction. And his heart was broken for them. What a Christ-like example we see in Paul who when he sees the, the, the secular philosophies of the world, when he sees the idolatry of the world, certainly there is an amount of indignation, but there is also a deep amount of compassion that Paul has for the lost. Paul's motivation was strong because he knew that the outcome of their idolatrous form of living was death. Paul himself says in Romans six twenty through 21 For when you were slaves of sin, as these people are, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul knew full well the end of those things that he saw the people of Athens were consumed by, were taken over by, and Paul's heart was broken for them. He didn't want that for them. Paul wanted something better for them, something greater for them. He wanted them to know Christ and to have a true hope and to find the the true meaning of life, the end that philosophers seek. He had it, and he wanted them to know it. And this should inform us and our motivations too, shouldn't it? I think for, for many of us as Christians, we, I know for me, I struggle with having compassion the way I ought. As we, we live in a world that's filled with all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of idolatry, and oftentimes they go hand in hand, just like in Athens. There's no, uh, no easier way to see this than in the LGBTQ movement, that this is an idolatrous philosophy. And we see the reaction of a lot of people, even of a lot of people who claim Christ, and their reaction is one that is completely devoid of compassion. One that is pure indignation. One that comes off to the world, certainly as as probably even just hatred. That's not Paul's attitude towards these people. Paul's attitude is one of compassion, and so ours as well should be. Yes, we recognize that many of the philosophies around us today are idolatrous and are evil and are an affront to God. But not only should we recognize that, we should recognize that each and every person caught up in these things is destined for hell unless they hear the gospel and believe. That should motivate us the way it did Paul, the way it did Christ a heart for the lost, so that we wouldn't just meet them with indignation, but with compassion. Paul was compassionate in his motivation, but not only was he compassionate, he was also bold. In verse 17, we see that he reasoned with them in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. This is where Paul always went, right? Over and over again, we've seen as Paul goes from place to place, where does he always go first? He always goes to the synagogue or wherever it is that the Jews are meeting if there is no synagogue. And Paul does the same thing here. He goes to the synagogue and he's preaching to the Jews. He's preaching to the, the, the God-fearers, those who, who are familiar with Yahweh, familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Paul didn't just confine himself to the place where Yahweh was, where Yahweh was already accepted, though that would have been very easy I'll just hang out here. If other people want to come and hear what I'm saying, they can come in here. But I'll just hang out here, preach the gospel here where, where, where sort of the, the groundwork's already been laid. Yahweh is already uh, the God that these people are familiar with. I'll just come and I'll build upon here. But he didn't. Paul took it to the streets. He went to the marketplace, the place of activity, commerce, where the people lived their lives, where they, they conducted all of their business. And he began preaching and reasoning with them there also now we we might find it hard to understand uh, when we hear the word marketplace what we probably think of as something like uh, like fresh time or or maybe target or something like that. We think of like a grocery store. but you have to understand the the marketplace here in Athens and in this day wasn't just the place where people bought their their produce, brought their food, certainly it was that, but this was the place where all sorts of business, business was conducted. This is where uh, news was heralded. This is where the law courts were and where uh, judicial things happened. This is where business was conducted and deals happened. This is where the, the life of the city took place, was in the marketplace. So Paul comes to this place where business is being done, where lives are being lived. And he comes and he begins to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul's ministry is marked by both compassion and by boldness. And indeed, both are required. It's one thing to be compassionate. But if you're unwilling to tell anyone the truth, then you are standing by and watching people as they barrel headlong towards hell. You might be compassionate for them. You might feel terrible. But if you're unwilling to say anything, then what are you really doing for them? What kind of love are you truly showing them? In the same way, if you are someone who's very bold, happy to confront the ideologies of the world, happy to confront the enemies of God, but you are devoid of compassion, then again, are you really imitating Paul as he imitates Christ and loving well and preaching well and caring for the lost? No, indeed, just as the case with Paul, it is for us that both compassion and boldness are required if we are to faithfully preach the gospel. And so we've seen Athens, the first player in our story. We've seen Paul, a man who was devoted to the Lord, as the second player. And then the third player, the third ingredient, if you will, is the gospel, the solution to every man's issues. Paul pointed beyond the here and now beyond what these philosophers were were consumed by, whether a Stoic or an Epicurean. Paul preached beyond the here and now and pointed to Jesus and to the resurrection. This was Paul's apologetic in the face of these philosophers. It was the historical, actual reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. To the philosophers who who largely uh, rejected uh, much of, of the supernatural aspects about Christianity, about resurrection, this concept that they, as is the case with people today, sounds foolish. Why does it sound foolish? Because people don't rise from the dead. That's not normal. And yet, this is the very thing that Paul points to. This supernatural act of God was the basis for his belief and for his philosophy. This was the source material that he took them to. The reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. We see a continued pattern in the preaching of the apostles. Both Paul, but also Peter, and all throughout the book of Acts. There is an undeniable, unmistakable pattern in their preaching. That all throughout this book, it is consistent regardless of the audience to which they are preaching. Over and over again, we see an emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. Over and over again, look back through Acts. And, and, and I would encourage you to do this. If you, uh, if you take your Bible and just open up the book of Acts and read through it. And every time you see the resurrection being discussed, just mark it or, or mark it on the side. If you don't like to mark it in your Bible. Mark it down and just count how many times throughout the book of Acts as the apostles, as the, the pastors are preaching, that they preach the resurrection. It's a lot. It's over and over again to the point that it seems that wherever they preach the gospel, they discuss the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we need to be instructed by this. For indeed, we, we as Christians oftentimes, we will emphasize heavily The cross of Christ. And indeed, it is necessary, it is essential that we discuss the cross of Jesus Christ. And what it is that happened there is God's wrath was poured out upon Christ. And he bore our sins. He bore our iniquities on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. And therefore, we are justified before God. But I think as Christians, we are missing something. If we don't then go on as we discuss the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, if we don't go on then to proclaim the resurrection. For indeed the resurrection is where we see our hope solidified, where we see our hope fastened, that the grave did not have victory over Christ. And just as it didn't have victory over him, it doesn't have victory over us. We got to see the beautiful picture of this for the believer last week as we saw two people get baptized recognizing their death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Our union with Him means that just as He rose from the grave, we too look forward to that day, though we will all die if the Lord doesn't return. Each and every one of us will die a physical death. But that is not the end for believers. We look for something past that. We look for something beyond that. We look to Christ's resurrection, and it is in that that we place our hope. It is in that that we trust. It is in that that we find our fulfillment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of these philosophers who rejected what Paul had to say were rejecting the only philosophy that had any view towards eternity or even past this temporary life for that matter. And therefore they were rejecting the only philosophy that has any hope. So where are we now today? The title of my sermon, as you notice, would have us indicate that uh, there is a a sort of modern Areopagus that we now live in today. Like Athens, our culture today is marked by idolatry and and bad philosophy, secular philosophy, philosophy that's rooted in all the wrong source material. And now we, we might not be dealing with Epicureans and Stoics although we might be dealing with Epicureans and Stoics, they just don't call themselves that. Most of the the philosophies we deal with today are just as singularly focused on the here and the now. On what I can gain now and find my pleasure, my joy, my satisfaction in now, here on earth, in material things. Or what I can do now to help control my emotions, to, to take hold of my life, as it were, here on this earth, and make the most of it, solidify myself here and now. There are some who who claim that Christianity is a sort of cop-out. But I believe the opposite to be true. For indeed, as Christians, for us to claim Jesus Christ and the resurrection means that we are putting ourselves out there, that we are rooting our faith in an actual historic event of the resurrection. We are laying it on the line to assert that there is a God and that he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures has great ramifications, both in how we live now, but also in how we interact in the marketplace. And as believers, we should be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. We should study the scriptures, study the source material that we have for our biblical Christian philosophy philosophy, and be prepared to explain that to others. But I would argue that the real cop out is what many people call themselves nowadays when they say they are agnostic. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this—that they are agnostic. I've sort of found it to be true, and in, uh, in my experience, for what it's worth, that I, I hear fewer and fewer people nowadays saying that they're atheist—that they that they believe God does not exist, that there is no God—and I hear more and more people saying that they are what's called agnostic. An agnostic is one who says, "Well." maybe there is a God, maybe there's not, but who can know? I don't claim to know whether there is or isn't a God. But in actuality, isn't that the cop-out? To say, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but you know, who knows? <laughs> I'll just go on living my life in a very Epicurean or Stoic way, ultimately, focused on the here, focused on the now and yet still having no hope for eternity. But even still, many of these people, even people who might call themselves agnostic, who might reject the authority of God, they do still believe in or want to believe in a higher power, oftentimes, don't they? A higher power of some sort or or spiritual force of some sort, whatever it is that's supposed to mean. But you'll notice that oftentimes this higher power that these people are willing to embrace, willing to believe, willing to accept, is not one that has any sort of binding authority over their life. Not one that they will ever have to give any sort of account to for the way they lived, but just something that, I don't know, makes them feel good about living in this world. But it does them no good. Notice that the people in Athens who were very influenced by and driven by philosophy, were still open to spiritual realities. They accepted the pagan idolatry. They were even willing to listen to the the, the foreign uh, divinities that Paul had to, to say, supposedly. They were happy to hear it. They were happy to accept it if they thought it might benefit them in the here and now. They were open to spiritual things. But being open to spiritual things doesn't do you any good. Only the truth about Christ and His work. That's the only means there is of hope. The only means of salvation that there is. It's the only reality that will do anyone any good beyond today. Beyond here and beyond now. We see their sort of happiness to embrace anything new in verse 21. The final words of 21 are... Are rem- reminiscent even of our culture still today, where we read, as Luke writes, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They're always looking for the next thing. What's the new thing I can learn about? What's the new thing that I can add to my repertoire of philosophy and of, of all these things? What is it that's gonna help me right now? They were happy to add those things in, just like our culture is today. There's always all sorts of new ideas, new philosophies, new perspectives on Paul, popping up left and right. Because we, as human beings, are prone to enjoy and partake in and and be drawn to novel things. But the truth remains the same. The same truth that Paul preached to the Athenians, who were always looking for something new, is the same truth that we have to preach today to a culture that is always looking for something new, but that is so deceived by idolatry and by secular philosophy. The one thing that they need to hear and that Paul and the apostles preached no matter who they were talking to was Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Seeing what Paul was doing here in the presence of these philosophers, seeing his apologetic method, it's very encouraging to a simpleton like myself to know that I I might not know everything there is to know about philosophy about Epicureans and Stoics. In fact, you've heard all of my knowledge today about Epicureans and Stoics. I've exhausted it. But the good news is that I don't have to know everything about those things in order to faithfully proclaim the word of God, in order to faithfully do the work that God has called me to do. What do I need to know? I need to know the source of truth itself. I need to know God's word. That's where truth is found. That is the source material that we need and the source material that the world around us desperately needs if they are to have a good, and a right philosophy. I want to close with this example from from Tim Keller. Uh, He used this example when he was talking about this text, and I thought it was helpful. He said that many people, whenever they they think about what it means to be touched by God, to experience God, what many people, especially sort of in secular philosophy, think it means, I think it might have been the case for the Athenians as well, is that it's almost like being in a in a, in a room or, or at a party with 20 people, and you introverted people in here will, will really relate to this uh, illustration, it, it, it can sometimes be very hard to, to come into a situation like that and find the energy to interact with all those people and engage with all those people. The, the, the secular philosophy oftentimes thinks of the touch of God, the impact that he has on, on humans, as being like coming and giving you in that room of 20 people The the energy, the ability to go and interact with all those people and enjoy them, right? But he says, in reality, the touch of God, salvation, when the Lord comes and he takes hold of a person, it's not just empowering them, giving them the energy in order to be able to interact with those 20 people, but it's more than that. It's opening their eyes to see that there are 60 people in the room, that there's so much more than just what they were seeing initially truly opening their eyes to where joy is to be found, to where hope comes from, so that the people who, who think that they know, who think that they are enjoying this party of 20 people, they, they look and they see the believer, the one who's truly been touched by God, and say, where are they even getting joy from? What are they, what are they even enjoying over there that I'm missing? That's what it truly looks like to be impacted by the gospel. Not just to have one more thing added to our repertoire of spiritualism and philosophy that will help us uh, get through life as we know it. But it means to have our whole world expanded and to understand all that, all these things that we were blind to before. The spiritual realities to look beyond this world and into the next and to find true and lasting hope. That's what the Lord does when he saves a person. That's why Paul was preaching to them something other than just base level philosophy, other than just the wisdom of man, the wisdom found in nature. He was giving to them something of eternal significance, something that would not just help them in this world, but that would completely change their life and give them hope for all of eternity. That's the message that we cling to as believers. Christ and his resurrection, and it's the message that we take to the world around us. Whether it be uh, 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 someone in a synagogue, whether it be someone in the streets, whether it be someone uh, at the fall festival, the message is the same, Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Let's pray.